This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Josh Heath, and today I am joined again by our friend of the show, Charles Siegel. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing really well. Uh, excited to be talking about the book that we're talking about today. Today, we are going to talk about Rage Across the Heavens. This is a book that I uh, remember owning back in the day and somehow have lost my physical copy and now... I've got it on PDF, and I'm excited to dive in and uh, talk some more about it. Before I do that, I want to remind folks that we've got a Patreon. If you want to support Werewolf Podcast on Patreon, you can do so. Just look up Werewolf the Podcast, and you will be able to find us there. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can join our Discord, where we talk about various werewolf uh, books and ideas and things like that and throw things around with each other. And uh, if you want to support at a higher level, it will help us keep the show running and doing all those things that we need to do. So it's very, very helpful. This book, uh, just by the numbers, was published in 1999. It was written by Jackie Casada and Nikki Rea, uh, developed by Ethan Skemp, edited by Eileen E. Miles, art direction by Eileen E. Miles. Artists were John Cobb, Rebecca Guay, Leif Jones, Sean Murray, Steve Prescott, Drew Tucker, and Ron Spencer. So um, lots of interesting art in this particular book, and um, let's start off real quick, Charles, by just kind of giving an overview of this book. Like, if someone were to ask you, what is this book, what, how would you describe the basic idea behind it? Well, a little tongue-in-cheek, werewolves in space! Yeah, that, there's I, a difference in that. <laughs> yep, uh, it absolutely is werewolves in space, so... Uh, I think that's a completely accurate way, even if it's tongue-in-cheek, of describing what's happening here. There's a lot. This is basically a book about the way that werewolves relate to the sky. Yeah. It's, the heavens, let's say. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's literally rage across the heavens. But like in a, in, a, in a cosmological rather than a theological sense. Yep. There's a lot going on in this book. It, um, there, is so, there is so much. Like I, I, I went into this looking for werewolves in space, and I got, oh, this is a huge meta plot book. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. This book came out before Revised. It's actually like a good two years before Revised came out. But this is like one of the most important meta plot books that sets up everything that happens in the Revised era of Werewolf. Um, and it sets up a lot of the revised meta plot in Vampire and in Mage as well. Yeah, like, I, like so as a Mage person, I'm used to the um, intro fiction being kind of lackluster and often having very little to do with what's in the rest of the book. And I was pleasantly surprised by, like, I guess I'm going straight into the beginning of the uh, book review, but I actually liked the intro fiction, which is not something I'm used to. 
Yeah, I had the same reaction where I usually very dislike or at least moderately am just bored by the introductory fiction. And this introductory fiction, I think, is super compelling and very, very appropriate to the rest of the book. So I was reading it going, I want to know more about the stories that are happening here. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a, it's a and uh, I'll, I'll summarize it. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of vignettes of werewolves and others noticing the red star in the sky and freaking out about what does this mean? Which, yeah, was kind of a big deal. Yeah, and the red star for folks that don't know is uh, a thing that's found in both vampire and werewolf most uh, distinctively, but it get, does get mentioned in mage as well. It's, uh, it, it, it's fairly prominent in mage, in mage as well. Okay. Um, I'm less familiar with the revised mage stuff, so I wasn't sure how much it was present in there as well. Yeah, so, so, I, so I started with revised and the red star has been looming over my conception of the world of darkness from, the, from when I first picked up mage revised. That's totally fair then. Um, it's one of the key elements of the meta plot for the revised era and this idea of whatever it is, this red star appears in the Umbra and in the real world and is only seen by supernaturals for whatever reason. And it has connections potentially to the worm. Uh, it's called the eye of the worm by werewolves or Anthelios uh, by them as well. Um, and it's, uh, I think for vampires, I can't actually remember what they call it, but it is supposedly a sign of Gehenna apocalypse or the end times in one form or another. Whatever it may be, and it's been, it was interpreted differently and I think every single ascension, scenario, ascension, apocalypse, Gehenna, whatever scenario across all the game lines, it always means something different, uh, mm -hmm. except for in one werewolf one and one mage one, which we will probably talk about in a few minutes. I look forward to that because uh, the overlap in that, uh, I won't spoil anything, but yeah, there is some overlap between mage and werewolf when it comes to those end time scenarios. Well, well pl plus of the five main supernatural types in the world of darkness, wraiths aren't going anywhere, vampires aren't going anywhere, changelings, you know, they have some connection to the moon because of the moon landing, but other than that, they're not really going anywhere, but mages and werewolves both go to space. Yep. And they, interestingly enough though, the way this book is set up, they don't overlap, but they do both go to those same places potentially. So there's possibly a lot of overlap that can happen between yeah, the two of them. Yeah, at the same time that it was, it was great seeing a little bit of mage uh, werewolf crossover in that opening fiction. There's none in the entire rest of the book. Right. There's some brief mentions of vampire werewolf crossover in the book and in the opening fiction, but no other crossover happens in this book. So it's, it's definitely not a crossover book. It's definitely a werewolf the apocalypse book almost yeah. wholeheartedly. Oh yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, being for your game line. It's just kind of surprised me considering how much of, Frankly, I think every, I think both Mage and Changeling, um, Casada and and Rhea have worked on. Yeah, they did a lot of work in Changeling, so it is surprising there's not, uh, maybe not a little bit more crossover there. Um, and I, I think you're right, they did some work in Mage as well. So they yeah. could have done this as a big crossover book, and I actually would have been really happy with that. But 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 on the other hand, when we get especially to Chapter Two, the focus on werewolves really pays off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's start talking about the uh, first chapter because 
this is for me, I wasn't sure how I would feel about this first chapter, but after thinking about it a little bit more, I think this first chapter works really well. I just wish in some ways it was combined with chapter four. Um, so this book is, is set up in five chapters. Each chapter gives you something different. Um, and it has one appendix. It's a 150 yeah. page book. Yeah. Um, that, that, yeah. That was one of my, my thoughts. Chapters one and four had a lot of redundancy between them and combining, just combining them into one expanded chapter or just putting them next to each other so that the redundancy wasn't necessary. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. We would have cleared up some room, but some other cool stuff. Cause this book is packed. Every page has something cool on it. Unless you're looking at the science, in which case it is wrong on every single example. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned this to me, and I, I, if you want to rant on that, you absolutely can. But the so, science in this book is not particularly sound. Uh, and, and I'm saying not particularly sound compared to the science in the world of darkness in general, which is already kind of um, not great. Right. Uh, I, think, I think my favorite one is when talking about how to get between planets in the, in the ethereal realm, they're talk, they talk about the solar using the solar winds to travel. and uh, I have it pulled up, so they uh, quote, although scientists refer to the streams of electromagnetic particles with streak hours from the sun as the solar wind, in the physical realm, it's not possible to utilize them for travel. There have been designs for solar sails since the 1800s. We may not have built them, but part of that is just that rocketry is, more, is cheaper right now, but we could build them. We've just chosen not to yet, but uh, you very much can use the solar wind to get around, and anyone who thinks the etherites aren't doing that over in Mage is uh, kind of ridiculous. Right. That's the 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 funny thing about this book is you definitely have to walk into it with uh, the knowledge that everything is going to be metaphysically, I wouldn't say accurate, but metaphysically appropriate to the werewolf setting. But if yes. you look at this with a critical scientific eye, you're going to be looking at it very askance because well, it will not fit well, up. I, like, I'm not going to criticize the science inside the ethereal realm because the ethereal realm is an umbral realm that werewolves go to and magic, whatever. Right. But it's when they say things like in the physical world, people, you know, you can't use the solar wind to travel. Solar sails have been a thing since the 1800s. They were getting popular in pop sci-fi in the 1980s. And by 1999, the internet existed. So it's just the kind of omission that just, it's annoying more than it's, it doesn't detract very much except for that one sentence really should be changed in some way. Yeah, there are a couple of times, there are a few sentences yeah. in this book where I look at it and go, oh, hmm, there's a, let me back up a little bit for our listeners, but, um, this book is broken down into chapters that talk about different things. The first chapter is about explaining what the ethereal realm is, and we'll get into that a little bit more. The it's second training chapter, for werewolves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the second chapter is about the um, concept of astrology within werewolf society, which is really, really interesting, but it adds a whole complex layer of stuff to this world that if you're not uh, actually interested in astrology, you might look at this and go, wow, this is a lot of extra stuff. I don't know how to deal with it. Um, chapter three is about storytelling using omens and prophecy. And then chapter four is actually a chronicle um, setup. 
So it gives you a chronicle in chapter four that is designed to be told in a very loose sort of way. It's actually a decent way to build a chronicle if you ask me to build it loosely. Um, and we're going to talk about that more in depth, I think. Yeah. Um, and then chapter five is about the, um, the NPCs and the various rules and things like that that you would need to run this game. Um, it's also it's also got a bunch of like gifts and merits and flaws related to the astrology and so and so on. Like chapter five, well, we'll get to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, something chapter four and the um, intro fiction uh, cover. When we were talking about Metaplot just now, we only mentioned the Red Star. That's not the only major Metaplot revelation in this book. What to you is the other major Metaplot revelation? There's the one well, that sits for me, but... If I remember right, the very first vignette in the prologue is the Perfect Metis. And the Perfect Metis, or the first, um, the, this uh, born, uh, this Metis is born from two Metis mating with one another, and that uh, is supposed to be completely impossible. And so this has been referenced before in werewolf books that this idea uh, is out there, but this is the, the time they finally say this happened or this is going to happen in this story. And that kicks off the whole, um, the whole plot line for all of this book and all of revised, basically this yeah, gets like, all like of it started. Like kicking off the book in the first like two paragraphs, red star, perfect metis, like, so tell me more. <laughs> right. Um, and this book does. This book goes in depth in both of those things and tells you a lot of different things and then leaves a lot of it up for storytellers to decide, this is how I'm going to run it in my game. Yeah, it's, it's a very useful toolkit for these important portent, portents and omens, which we'll talk more about when we get to chapter three. Yep. So chapter one is, a, is written in character. Yeah. It's, but it's written in a way that I think is really interesting. It walks you through the eyes of this one werewolf who um, her name is off the top of my head. I can't remember, um, but she's That's a great name for a werewolf. Do you remember what it is? Cause I can't find it. No, right I, I, was, I, I was just joking, joking that off the top of my head. I can't remember. It would be a great right. name for a werewolf. It would be a good name for a werewolf. <laughs> um, but this book is told from her perspective, regardless of who she is. Uh, hopefully I'll remember at some point. Um, but she is walking you through. She is um, a member of this sept that is uh, the sept of the stars that is in the ethereal realm. And she is walking you through the entire ethereal realm, taking you. Found it. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, and, and Terry's Bitter Truth. Which I think is a fantastic name. Which oh, that's also a great remember. name, but, but it's got nothing on off the top of my head I can't remember. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, so Antares takes you through the, uh, the ethereal realm, talking you through each of these visits to the various celestial bodies or the uh, spiritual reflection of all the planets and the stars uh, and the star or the, uh, the sun, that's the word for our star, and the moon and other places that are really important in the ethereal realm, um, which I think yes. is, is fascinating. I think it's well-written. Yeah, like the impression I got is there's kind of an implication that the ethereal realm contains kind of a miniature version of the entire universe and just there's not enough time to cover other stars. Right. Yeah, I so said the universe is a big place. And werewolves 
have no particular reason to care about things happening four light years away. Right. Uh, right. Going as far as Pluto is a little is a little bit of a stretch for most werewolves because it's because werewolf is super grounded on Earth. Yeah, and this um, this book I think does a good job of focusing in on these are the celestial bodies that would be important to werewolves and why. Um, mm -hmm. And it does a, an excellent job of explaining a bunch of different celestial phenomenon that are um, that are uh, integral to werewolf stuff as well, like moon bridges and spirit gates. And it talks about the various uh, anchor heads and explains how they work. This is the first time that you get an explanation from how most of those things work. Um, so you get all of this information about the planets and their uh, spiritual reflections and the spirits that are in charge of them. And you get all of this, like, this is actually how you would get from one place to the other and how that would look in a game. Yeah, it's got, it, it's got all of that. Um, honestly, the, only, the biggest criticism I have of it, and this is just a fundamental thing in Werewolf, and I admit it's because I'm coming from Mage, Mages actually go to the other planets. They don't go to the planets in the special realm. Right. Uh, and I just think it'd be cool for, for, you know, a bunch of mages who are setting up a shantry on Mars, maybe trying to tap into Olympus Mons for power or something, just running into a werewolf they weren't expecting. That would be a, it's a really cool story. And it is almost a shame that werewolves go into this special, like, reflection of the uh, of the celestial realm rather than actually going to those places yeah like like i imagine that if you're on mars in the ethereal realm and you want to go to physical mars there's probably a shortcut there is it actually talks about it in chapter four where it talks yeah. about going into the penumbra of the planet that you're actually on so you can get closer to it by yeah, the, doing that the the only the only thing to concern of concern there is that not, uh, at least according to Mage, if you want to build a unified cosmology, is that not all of the planets have penumbras, and that goes back to Book of Worlds in nineteen ninety five six. It, 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 uh, I think Book of Worlds might have been ninety two or ninety three even. No, you're thinking Book of Chantries. Oh, maybe, yeah. I knew it was still early, but maybe it's not so, as early as I thought. Book of Worlds was a little bit later, and then Infinite Tapestry was like 2001 and, and covered it all again again for Revive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, if you are interested in doing all sorts of space stuff with werewolves, I do recommend at least getting uh, someone to photocopy you the pages about the planets from the mage point of view, because that might let you do something that will surprise werewolf players, but is still covered by World of Darkness books by just bringing in a little bit of the cosmology of Mage, which has been covering the planets for a bit longer. Yep. It would add a, an extra cool layer of story potential to do that. Um, I think if you were going to use this as a chronicle book, having that backup information would just be helpful in expanding it and making it a really deep chronicle to run. Like, like if you want, if like you're running, like say you're running this and you want a, bre a breather episode, werewolves find one of the various moon bases that mages have and they have to decide, is this sacrilege? Right. It, are we going to destroy this technocracy base or this tradition base? Um, because it absolutely because should not be on the And can we? Because they're often heavily fortified. Right, exactly. And attacking a mage at the center of their power is a bad idea, even for a pack of werewolves. Right. 
Uh, now, powerful werewolves that are probably going into the ethereal realm are probably pretty high rank. Um, they're not going to be cubs. They're not going to be, you know, cleaths, uh, just having gone through their rite of passage. But, but still, it's probably at suicide. At the same time, a horizon realm tends to have a master or two. Right, exactly. Uh, so so we're, we're still talking about, you know, comp let's say comparable numbers of XP. Yeah. And if you've got a mage, if you've got a mage sitting there who's prepared, who's prepared, ha has their defenses already set up, and so on, like there are some fascinating stories to tell. But the werewolves might want to send the galliard to talk first. It might be a good idea just to see what happens, rather than you know uh, going right. immediately for their throats. Yes, but I, I, like I can think of two two um tr mage bases there, and like one of them is a techno a fortified technocracy base that's under that's underground on the moon. Which, yeah, you're not cracking that one very easily. They the technocracy is aware of werewolves, and if they don't have access to silver that they can like flood a hall with, I don't know what they're even doing. Right, and particularly and, if they're on the moon, I'm sure they have those resources. Yeah. Transmutation is relatively easy in Maze. They can just turn the air around you into silver if they really need to. Um, and then you've got the uh, Etherite Victoria Station, which is like an old-style train station in orbit around the moon, because why the hell not? Um, I and, love and, the Etherites. And it's just weird and great, and werewolves should visit it and just be like, what is going on here? Right. Like Glasswalkers will be like, this is seems so low tech. How are they managing that? And everyone else is going to be like, why are they even here? Let's destroy this before it gets out of hand. And the Glasswalkers are like, it's already out of hand. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I imagine, though I don't know them very well, very well, that the Stargazers will look at it and be like, huh, nifty, and move on with their lives. Right, exactly. They're just like, that doesn't bother me, or that doesn't pertain to me. I'm going on and doing the thing, dealing with this and, prophecy. And I, I mentioned Mars because I was just imagining a, werewolf, a pack of werewolves trying to take on Doisitep. Well, that would be a really cool story as well. Um, for so, yeah, so for the werewolf people, Doisitep is the most powerful uh, tradition chantry in the universe. It has dozens of masters, including Porthos Fitzempress, who is the most powerful mage possibly to have ever lived, with one exception, because that guy cured vampirism. Um, <laughs> just as an offhand thing in, world, in the book, A World of Darkness. There's, there's a mage who cured vampirism. We're never going to bring him up again. Um, <laughs> Which becomes its whole me own metaplot thing later on in Revise, where it's like, that's really impossible, but... Yeah, in first edition, things were not as set down, that's for sure. Yeah. So Porthos is, at, at worst, the second most powerful mage ever to live. He has, like, he has, um, he has the ability to not just light you on fire, but to light that fire on fire. Uh, that, that seems like a reasonable way to describe Forces 6, doesn't it? Yeah, that does seem like a good way of describing it. Um, it would be a really interesting conversation, Charles, at some point if we did a uh, dedicated mage werewolf crossover talk. Um, so if you ever want to have that conversation, we should think about doing it. Yeah. May, may, uh, maybe if uh, the book that I was reading this originally uh, to research will be ever get finished. That would be good. That would be a good time to, <laughs> to have that chat. Um, well, we'll see how, we'll th see how things happen. You know that my new year is going to be weird. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the planets are, are just, they describe describes how to get between the planets. Describes the uh, describes 
Well, the way that I, I interpreted it, it describes one incarna for each planet, because the planets are kind of the Celestines, and they tend to have more than one incar you know, incarnation. Yes, which is, so is not yeah. super well described here, but it is true that there are different incarna for each of the Celestines. So there are m potentially multiple like avatars of each celestial body in the solar yeah, system. Yeah, but these are the, but these are kind of the default ones that Garu are going to are going to meet. Uh, I, I think it's kind of how it's presented, yeah. and it also includes under what circumstances and for how many points and with what benefits do they become your totems? Yeah, which and, is huge. Like getting these types of figures as a totem would be a very big deal. So if you you could run an entire game just based around, hey, we want to get this totem for our pack. Yeah, just. Just, just picture a pack of Garu who are all about fighting the apocalypse and destroy and destroying the worm wherever it dwells, with Mars as their totem or Rorg. Uh, we'll talk about Rorg in a minute, I think. Yes. Rorg is the best. Rorg is my absolute favorite. Um, let's let's do like a quick rundown of the different celestial bodies. So I'm going to try and remember them from uh, the the center of the solar system outward. Um, okay, that's not the order they're presented in, but it's the it's a reasonable order to do it. Right. Um, the order they're presented in is a little strange, but it's very Garu-centric, so I guess it yeah. makes some sort of sense. Um, basically, so, they start with the moon, and then they do from the solar center out. Right, which I, I guess I get it. Um, so it's Helios, um, or... Um, uh, Katanka Sonak. Katanka Sonak, who is the incarna of Helios, uh, the sun. So that's where it starts. Um, then you've got uh, Mercury, which has Mitanu as its um, incarna, and then you have um, you have Hakahe, who is the incarna of Vulcan. So in werewolf cosmology, Mercury is the planet that has an opposing planet that's always on the opposite part of the solar system. Which where, I, where, whereas, just for comparison, in Mage, it's Earth that has one. Right, which is uh, Autochthonia, which is yep. the technological sort of counterpart to Earth. So Another place that I think it'd be fun for werewolves to pop up, especially glasswalkers. I was really upset when rereading this that there's no mention of it. I was like... Is there any mention of it anywhere in the entire werewolf line, though? I don't think so. There might be in a later book, but at this point, I have not seen any mention of it, which I find sad because it would be really, really cool if there was a mention of it. It actually has fewer mentions in Maids than you would expect, too, considering how it looms over the setting. Right. It's uh, it's one of those things that Autochthonia is a really cool idea that just doesn't get enough page count, I think. Um, but it's one of those things that it's an optional element of plot lines, I guess. So it, it can go either way. I can see either argument for it. Yeah. I... Uh... Again, if you if you grab those book, the mage books that talk about this stuff, they at least devote a little bit of word count to Autochthonia. And if you really want to go hog wild, go look at Exalted. Right, that's the place to really dive into Autochthonia. For those that are interested in it, uh, Exalted has several books about uh, the the place and the, the predecessor. Yeah, the predecessor to what becomes Autochthonia in the World of Darkness, if you want it to be, because that is all all those connections between Exalted and the World of Darkness are optional. Yeah, they, they were not there when Exalted was first written, and they were not there at the end of second edition of Exalted, but they were in there for a little while in the middle. Right, exactly. 
Um, so we've got through uh, Mercury and its uh, opposing uh, planet Vulcan. And then we've got uh, Tambia, which is Venus, the incarnate yeah. of Venus. And then we've got... Ashtara. Uh, Ashtara, yeah, the incarnate of Gaia. This is one of those things that I think is really, really interesting. Gaia herself is kind of unattainable to Geru, but Ashtara, her incarna, is someone you can actually go and meet with. So uh, a question I have about Garu cosmology and relationship with spirits, because, you know, this is now my seventh werewolf book. I, I hope everyone's proud of me for reading seven werewolf books. I'm proud of you. Uh, I'm slowly working my way through the game line. Next up for me is, w, is Werewolf 20 Umbra. Um, do werewolves ever actually talk to Celestines directly, or does that explode their heads like it would have made? You know, it ne I, I cannot remember a time when werewolves actually directly interact with one of the Celestines. Because I kind of got the impression from the text under Ashtara that there's something different about how they can't talk to Gaia, but if Gaia is a Celestine, of course they can't. Right. It's too big. Like, you can't have a conversation with a planet. Yeah, which is totally fair. I think it's just, it's interesting that Garu think they are doing the will of Gaia, but they don't know, even though they could go and talk to Ashtara, and potentially you would think they would get a closer idea of what Gaia wants from them by talking to one of her incarna, but not uh, necessarily. I, I think if the goal is to win the apocalypse, they should talk to Tambia more. That would absolutely be helpful. Um, talking to all of the Incarna would actually be a really good idea because all of them have some really interesting like lore that they could share with the Garu that they could probably pay attention to. Yeah, I, I was just talking bluntly about reproducing. Um, right. That 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 like one of the critiques I do have here is that this though they have new names for everything that as far as I can tell, don't appear in any mythology that I could find on quick Googling, which is great. I, I love original things like that. And it, it avoids having any um, of the cultural issues that both werewolf and mage have run into many, many times. Yeah. They still have the same symbolism. Like yeah. Mitandu is kind of a trickster, like Mercury or Hermes. Uh, Tambia is kind of a mother and a fertility figure, like Venus, Aphrodite, and, and so on and so forth. Like, there's, there's not a huge difference between them and their, say, Greek mythology counterparts. And I, I, I wish there'd been a little bit more space between how, he, how mundane humans think about the, pl the planets and their symbolism and how the Garu do. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's definitely connections to cultural elements. There's some Native American elements that are touched on. Um, Jupiter, is the Jupiter is the king. I mean, like, it's pretty one-to-one one one in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, it absolutely is. It, but you're absolutely right. They do pull it back a little bit from real culture. So it's, this is a happy space that I've found in the world of darkness, where it's like we are touching on real human cultural elements, but not enough that it's appropriative. It's just on that edge where it's like, I think this is still okay. This is better, at least, oh, yeah. than the and, full-on appropriation. And, and frankly, you can't really appropriate the ancient Greek gods. Right. Exactly. Which is kind of where, which is kind of where, which is kind of what I'm talking. Like, yes, a lot of it is wrapped up in kind of Native American garb, like Kata like Katanka Sonak is very clearly so. Uh, but in the but in the end, like 
The planet is the, the planet opposite Mercury is called Vulcan. It is a forge. Right. A literal forge, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> like, like, the fact that these are just, the, that these are the Greek gods in werewolf dress is really obvious if you know anything about the Greek gods, which most people learn about in school. Right. And, uh, and as I said, I, I would just have preferred a, li a little bit different. Like, um, what if your symbolism of Venus, even without taking it away from the theme of biology, is instead of about fertility, is about disease and poison, because that's what the atmosphere of Venus is like, in, according to science. That would be cool. Uh, what, like, what if, like, one thing I did like, and we're going to get, the, well, we just mentioned Ashtara, so I'll mention Nergal, uh, which is Mars, is, a, is themed around ice rather than the traditional red means fire, which I like, because Mars is a really cold place. Uh, and, and theming him around ice gives him a little bit more distance from the from his Greek and Roman counterparts, even though it's still a warrior, right. and has quite possibly the worst piece of art in this entire book. <laughs> Sadly, you're right. This uh, this piece of art has a uh, a wolf that is that is the eyes are not the same shape or size, uh, and its is face or. It's like, what if Pablo Picasso got lazy? <laughs> right. It's not. The snout, is that a weird, the snout is at an angle that makes no sense. I, like, I, I'm, sure that the, I'm sure that the artist has put, in, has put in other perfectly fine pieces, but this one just did not come together. Yeah, sadly. It's not bad. Like, parts of this art aren't bad. But the, then we, the, human, the human and the weapons are fine, and then you get to the wolf's face, and it's just like, what happened here? Yeah, the only thing like, that I can think of, which you mentioned to me, is that they must have been rushed to get this piece done. Well, we, we also know that um, 99 was about when deadlines started really sharpening for, for White Wolf, and they started putting out more and more books per year. Yeah. Uh, which I'm sure you will talk about the rushedness of some of the revised year things. Oh yeah, I'm sure that's going to have uh, happen as things go on as we get into those books. Um, uh, so let's think about this this uh, particular piece of art as foreshadowing. <laughs> so um, you've got Mars, and then you've got from that from after that the asteroid belt or Rorg. Um, Rorg is my absolute favorite incarna of the various celestial bodies in the solar system. Yes. Um, Rorg is the remnants of a planet that got destroyed and became the asteroid belt. Now, we don't actually know that the asteroid belt was a planet, um, but there are theories that say it could have been a planet that, at one point or another. Yeah, the, yeah right now, the, I think right now, the state-of-the-art theory last time I looked was that it wasn't a planet that was destroyed. It was a planet that almost formed. Right, right. Uh, which still you can have some really fun stuff with. Yeah. It, the... And Rorg is mad. Rorg is angry, which I think is... Yeah, sorry. I, I, I meant in the sense of anger, not in a sanity sense. Yep. And there's a reason that all Umbrood are covered, that Umbrood is just a, set, a chapter of the revised Book of Madness for Mage. Um, right. Sanity does not apply to these beings. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, so Rorg is the hunter. He is a, a uh, he spends his time in the asteroid belt hunting various things that come to him. 
And when Garu go to visit Rorg, they have to participate either as hunties or hunters in his hunt. Which I think or is else. super... Fa- yeah, or else. Or they're going to get destroyed. And it's not simply you can be hunter, you can, you can hunt or you can be hunted. It's here's some baseline humans we're going to hunt. You can help us hunt them or you can, or you can take their place. And he's cool with either as long, as long as you make the decision and stick with it. It's trying to find a third way that bothers him. Yeah, and it doesn't just bother him a little bit either. It makes him furious, um, which I think is, this is a great moral decision point for most werewolf players who are like, I, I'm here to protect humans. I don't want to rage out and kill them. And here's, you have to make that decision. Do you hunt these humans who turn out to just be spirits or do you become the hunties in the hunt? Like that's super cool as a concept, as a, like a story point that you've got to make that decision on. Yeah. And, and I can, and like, seriously, think about your werewolf PCs and just think what choice would they make? Cause I've had three, I've had three, one, one of whom I've spoken to Josh about before, one of whom I played in a one, in one session that didn't go anywhere. And one of which you were my ST for. Right. And I, I saw this dilemma and I just immediately went, the first, the first one I played, the Get a Fenris I've mentioned to you and on this podcast before, and the one I played in your game would both be like, no, we're going to be hunted. We can handle it. We can handle this. But the other one I played very briefly would be like, you know what? Let's do the hunting. And that's really put his personality in contrast to the others. And even though I never played him much, I feel like I actually know the character better because I thought this through. Nice. That is a great story hook then. If it's going to make you consider how am I going to use this as an ST or how are my characters going to react to this, it's a good story hook that people like, that gives you that like impetus, I think. Yeah, like this is, if I had to look for one thing to just drop into an otherwise completely normal game of Werewolf, I would be borrowing something from Rorg's test. Yeah. Because it, in the end, it is a test. He's, like, there are no humans actually going to be harmed. Uh, you don't get harmed as long as you don't, you know, kind of just stand there and let them kill you or something, which he would kill you because, frankly, you're failing the test. Um, like, it's a test of bravery and metal. Yep. Um, and, and all of the Incarna put players potentially through, uh, put characters through a a trial of some form or another, but Rorg's is the most like definitive, like this is a trial you are going to face, figure it out or die. Yeah, Rorg's is the one that is, like the others are often, can you figure this out? Can you best me in some way? Rorg's is at the same time a test of your morality, but he doesn't care about that test. He cares about, are you brave enough to pick a side and stick with it? And he's testing the werewolf's ability to commit. And frankly, knowing how badly the werewolves are doing in the whole preparing for the apocalypse thing, that's kind of an important question. Can you commit to a course of action, even if it looks like it will harm you? For, you know, but can you carry it through so that maybe success will be possible? Yep. And that is a, the uh, key question in Werewolf the Apocalypse. Like, when will you rage? When will you actually figure out this is what we're going to do and do it? 
So I, 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 so I guess for this book, it's, we're not the ones asking, Rorg is asking, when will you rage? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think this would be a good time to mention that Rorg plays a part in the Mage uh, Ascension book. Is that right? Yeah, so Rorg is, so there's a scenario in Apocalypse and, in Asc and one in Ascension that are the same scenario, more or less, but from a werewolf perspective and a mage perspective, and I wish both of them had done some crossover to cover it, to cover it pro uh, better, in which Rorg decides enough is enough and chucks a big rock at Earth. You know, a planet killer meteor, it, it's something that makes the, um, the one from 65 million years ago that killed the dinosaurs look like, you know, Nothing, or at least the one in in Mage does. They mentioned a specific asteroid in the where in the Apocalypse book, and <sighs> yeah, the one they chose isn't actually big enough to do much damage to Earth. So it would destroy North America if it landed in the middle of it. Um, it would cool the global temperature a couple of degrees. Uh, Europe might have Europe and Asia might have a couple of years of bad crops, but Africa, being a bit more antipodal, would probably be a bit safer. And then, like, 20 years later, uh, the rest of the world will be more or less recovered ecologically, and um, North America will be a big hole, but that's what, like, it, it's just not big enough. I, I know how to do this math, and I did, and I did it. <laughs> Which, that's a danger as a storyteller, when you're like, I'm going to check the math on this, but it's fair. It's absolutely a fair thing to do. Here, here is my recommendation. If you want an asteroid big enough to destroy Earth, pick Ceres. Series is the biggest one. <laughs> or just make one up. Like, that's the yeah. absolute first oh, yeah. thing to do. Yeah, make one up, and it's just, it is big enough. I was just saying, if your players are going to ask you questions like, how big is it? You can look up the stats on series, and it's big enough. Fair enough. Uh, though, though I will say the apocalypse in, uh, scenario does specifically say things like, shattered the moon and then chunks of moon fell on earth and Ceres isn't big enough for that. There's nothing that is in the asteroid belt that's big enough for that. People just have no concept of how hard it would actually be to crack the moon apart. Though people like to crack the moon a lot in science fiction and other oh, uh, yeah. games. I, I had a player once ask me how, how many successes they need, their mage needed on their forces roll to blow up the moon. And I said, and I, and I, I sat down, I did some math and I told them to take them about 1.3 million. <laughs> that's uh, an extended ritual that's going to take them a little while then uh, well there were reasons that they wanted to blow up the moon and they were a bit more determined than i expected so their next question was you know okay so how much what on a spirit rule to kill luna and i said 1.3 million it's the same number of successes either way because <laughs> uh, that seems fair um and then they decided that the rest of the Chronicle was going to be them going around the world trying to get every mage on the planet working together on one ritual. And frankly, if you can do that, you can blow up the moon. Fine. That's how it's hard. Yeah, fair enough. If you can get all the mages in, on Earth to agree on anything, then you deserve whatever ridiculous scheme you've got <laughs> behind you. Like, like, I will say, like, the Ascension scenario that I recall did not talk about the moon being shattered. Just that the moon isn't actually, they're not gonna, you're not actually going to be able to have the moon just take the asteroid and nothing else. I, I think they said, like, everyone's, like, the Order of Hermes or something is trying to move the moon in the way. Uh, and there was, like, I, I think there was a sidebar or a hint. Maybe werewolves would have a problem with this. And maybe. 
Maybe. Um, they just might have a problem with it. <laughs> uh, and even if they do, the asteroid kind of skips off the moon's surface and still coming for Earth. It doesn't work. Uh, right. uh, but yeah, th these two scenarios both basically center around, for whatever reason, Rorg decides that it, the time has come. Earth, Earth needs to start over. No more life. Like, deny the worm its prize or, or whatever. And just chucks a big rock at Earth. And Earth dies. Uh, the werewolf one kind of throws everything else. It's kind of a kitchen sink scenario. Like, it's kind of a mess, but that Rorg thing is what sets it off. Whereas the mage one actually fits this book a lot better because it involves getting your group of mages together, going to the ethereal realm, to the celestial ball, uh, engaging in diplomacy and etiquette and ballroom dance that's symbolic of the forces of gravity, of gravity between the planets and trying to negotiate with the other planets to do something about this. And that kind of feels more like what this book is suggesting you should be doing with your game. Yeah, it absolutely does. Because th this is... This, the storyline here, uh, and I'm going to skip forward to chapter four yep. a little bit. Um, uh, we're going to get into chapter two and chapter three a little bit, but probably not as much as I want to, um, but we'll like skim discuss them at least. But chapter four, the Chronicle is about the perfect menace is born. You've got to figure out how to either protect or not protect the perfect menace. And then if you do decide to protect it, how you're going to uh, interact with the celestial realm to or the ethereal realm this uh, and the celestines and the incarna to figure out how to protect the cub and how to uh, ultimately defeat the worm and anthelios that's effectively the chronicle idea it just yep. gives you that and says here are a bunch of ways to run this here are a bunch of like different scenarios that you can include in your story which does seem a lot more in line with the ascension thing which is exactly what you were saying yeah, I, I, again, if, if you have any interest in Mage Werewolf crossover, the chapter um, and the, uh, the Earth Will Shake, I think, from Ascension has a lot that pairs very well with this book, and I strongly recommend it. it I, I admit I also kind of find it the most compelling uh, end-of-the-world scenario I've read simply because there is a chance to avert it if you do, every, if you do everything right. And... People think instead of just panicking if they have power, because like they grab some people, like the mages who are around, grab some humans and just take them into the spirit, into the umbra to wait out to to wait for everything to settle down so they can recolonize Earth. And you could also use it as a premise for a, a fun post-apocalyptic game with lower tech and everyone just trying to survive. It, uh, there's a lot of jumping off points from it. From it, uh, so it, it is my favorite of the end of the world scenarios uh, in Mage or Werewolf. The the Werewolf one is weaker because it's less focused. Yeah, um, it, it, this book, this Rage Across the Heavens book, gives you a better apocalypse scenario than the apocalypse scenario that it kind of informs. So if you took this book and took the apocalypse book, you could tell a really good story out of it. I think. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah, this plus Apocalypse plus Ascension plus the Book of Worlds and Infinite Tapestry are a great start for just really going and having fun with the planets and, and such in your chronicle. And Rorg and the asteroid belt is a common thread throughout the whole thing. Yep, 
um, which is part of why for me, and I, and I know for Charles as well, that he's one of our favorite figures in the world of darkness cosmology because he just adds, he's, he got so much there that makes him super, super compelling. Yeah, I, I'm also just going to mention something that is never mentioned in any book, but is a reasonable extrapolation. That's just a cool thing you could do with Rorg. And well, I mentioned the Storyteller's Vault project that I'm working on and that comes into, into this stuff, it's going to be included in there. Maybe Rorg's planet is there still in the low umbra. Have the, what if a silent strider and a stargazer go and find it? Oh, that's super cool. There's so many things you could do from there. Yeah, the very idea of the, the memory of a planet existing in the underworld, like, reflection of the celestial realms. Ah, I'm absolutely blown away by how cool that story could be. That would be awesome. I'll expect somewhere between 500 and 1,000 words on, um, in my upcoming project. Nice. I, I, will probably, I, will, I will almost certainly give you previews like I have with other things, asking, does this violate werewolf cosmology? I'm trying to be consistent here. And uh, hopefully it doesn't, but I, I, I don't expect it will. Uh, you've done a good job of it in the past. And, and, it's, and, and that's far enough out. Like this, we're talking deep, low umbra that you're not really going to see much from Wraith out there either. Right. It's just completely uncharted territory. You can do whatever you want with it. And one thing you could do is just plop a planet there that doesn't exist in the physical world or the ethereal reach any, uh, realms anymore. And think about, the favor, think about the sorts of favors you could get for, from Rorg if you can make use of that in some way and build a connection for him. Oh, man, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, I'm thinking of whole like chronicle ideas from that now. Um, um, when, when I get to play testing, I might grab you, grab you and say, Hey, want to go to the underworld in space? <laughs> <laughs> the underworld in space. Yeah. Um, you've, you've sold me. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, briefly, let's, go the outer, let's quickly go through the outer planets and then, yeah. uh, chapter two is another place I want to spend chapters two and three both have a couple of things I want to spend some time on because they're okay. also really cool, but chapter one has so much crossover potential. It's hard to not go into that. It, it's absolutely true. So, um, I just want to kind of do a brief overview of the rest of the, um, Incarna. Uh, there are Incarna for all the planets. So you've got um, Jupiter, which is Zarok. The you've, king. Yep, you've got... Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry. It's okay. I, I'm still on just, it's Greek mythology. Yep. <laughs> you've got Lubat, which is Saturn. Um, you've got Ruatma, which is Uranus. You've got um, Shantar, which is Neptune. And then you've got Meros, which is Pluto. And each of these is interesting in their own right. And you should, if you're interested in this book, you should spend some time reading it. But yeah. I don't think we want to talk about them necessarily right now because we're already running over uh, my time yeah, goal. So. Very time to decide that at the time of publication, Pluto was still classified as a planet. And fun fact, we are probably about two years short of a telescope that will detect a different pla uh, ninth planet which is exciting. Uh, uh, that, that we've calculated where it is, we just can't quite see it yet. I can't wait till we do. Then we can be like, yeah, there's another ninth planet. And then we can add it to our, uh, add it to your book, Charles. Oh, it's already going. Um, 
and then there's a the last sidebar sidebar on um, basically the, on I think that the proper term for these is the shenti, the wild uh, reaches, the weaver reaches, and the worm reaches. It might be the shenti. I don't think it actually or, calls them no, that anywhere no. here. It 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 doesn't. But these are kind of I guess these might be the ethereal versions because they're just essentially where the wild weaver and worm stuff comes from in the ethereal realm. Yeah, it touches on those realms in the deep umbra, um, but it doesn't directly, um, it's, it's this weird sort of thing where the ethereal realm is its own uh, umbral space. So it sort of touches on like the, it, you can connect to the weaver realms and the worm realms and the wild realms here, uh, but they're not actually physically present at all. Yeah. So, uh, should we start with chapter two? Yeah, let's talk about chapter two. So chapter two, speaking the language of the stars. This is astrology. It's amazing. The Garu have a calendar, and I'm going to make one. I, I'm not even kidding. I, this, this is my favorite. This is one of my favorite things in this entire book, and I went to expecting, oh, I love chapter one because I've got all these spirits of the planets and so on, and that's useful to me as a mage person. But then suddenly it's like, oh, deep Garu culture. This is great. Give me more. Yeah. The awesome thing about this chapter is that this expands what we know about Garu culture extensively. Astrology is a, when it's present in a culture, is a, usually a really, really important element of the spiritual underpinnings of that society. Um, astrology is a big thing in almost every human culture um, and having their own astrological system makes a ton of sense for Garu who are obsessed with celestial bodies and having this, it's just like why uh, we got some of this in one of the earlier players guide, but having it expanded here in this depth is just uh, it. It's amazing. And there's so much flavor that's added to the Garu by having it here. Yeah, I, I will also say that uh, you can enrich the uh, astrology by again borrowing a thing from mage, from mage, where the planets are associated with what are called shade realms attached to the nine spheres that mages use. Uh, so, so, may, so maybe you know your person bar, born under uh, a rising Mercury, if they're if they're true born. You know, they're just a Garu. Maybe they have maybe they have a little bit of more warlike aspect. But if you have a kinfolk mage, that maybe they maybe they have the sphere natural forces merit. Yeah. Just because both groups have have complex correspondences for the planets, combine them. Yeah, absolutely. You, you will not. You will not. You. My opinion is that you never go wrong adding depth uh, as long as it doesn't distract from the main point. And if you're anywhere in the vicinity of crossover, these two things are not going to distract from each other. They, they line up quite well because both sides use the Greek and Roman uh, mythology. Uh, but they line up very well, and there's all sorts of cool things that you can do with it. Yep. There are all kinds of references in here to other um, connections like astrology generally has like uh, connections and influences and things like it throughout people's lives. But this gives systems 
for if you were born under this particular sign in this month uh, under this particular auspice, it allows you to build a character that is actually um, influenced by all of these prophetic uh, influences in a way that is, it allows you to make your own character from it. Like you could create a character just by going through this and going, I want a character born under this star, star sign on this particular time. And then you'd have your own like fully fleshed out character from it. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, if you already have a, have a character created, then doing this can give you things, can give you the you know, various influences on them that, and some of them you are probably going to be aligned with how you were playing the character, which you might want to play up or at least use if they go to the ethereal realm. But some of them you had been playing the opposite way, in which case you have the fun going against fate angle for a plot. Exactly. Like th there is nothing like it. There is nothing that you can find in this that doesn't give plot ideas in some way. Like if you're going along with it, then you've got a character who is naturally doing something in a specific way. If you go against it, you have a character who has said, screw you to the fates, I'm my own wolf. Which is and awesome. And both are great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's, um, there's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Were there any like final thoughts you had on the chapter, on chapter two, Charles? Uh, there's also a fun section where it actually connects the Garou um, astrology to human astrology and just also very good and fun. And I, I strongly recommend it. And it combines very well with the, you know, it combines very well with all the merits and flaws in um, chapter five and the gifts in chapter five. And if you're going to go to the ethereal realms, take a little while, look things up and do your character star chart. Yep. It, it will add value to your story. If you do that, um, this would be a chapter that I would actually probably give to my players and say, Hey, figure out your own star chart stuff. And then um, let's talk about it and let's build this into this story that we're going to run. That's what I would do this with this particular yeah. chapter. Yeah, the, the, the storyteller can't do all of this because it does get fairly complex for each character. But it's, but yeah, there, there's a lot of meat to that chapter, but, not, but most of it is very conditional on the character being from, born on that specific day, day before it matters directly. Yep. And you could use that if a, a player brings to you like, hey, I'm interested in having all this stuff influence my character. It gives you a lot of meat to tell stories for them. So it's a fun thing to even add in and say, hey, we're going to have your characters go to a astrologer and have all your star charts put together and then have them have the players do it. And then you can tell that story in game of them getting their star charts done. Um, yeah, I think, I think we also discussed a little bit that this is kind of getting onto the core edges of Garou religion, which mm -hmm. is not explored in huge depth other than, you know, yay, Gaia, um, boo, worm. Right. This is actually like some pretty deep spiritual elements of stuff in this, this whole book is. And it's like there is an actual religion here if you wanted to bring it into your games. And it's, and, it's and, kind of a shame and, that it's stuck in this book and not in a core book. Yeah. But it's also so many pages, the core, a core book wouldn't fit it naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, 
one, one thing that I, I'd suggest is that you could also have characters who run the gamut of how much they care. Like maybe the Geta Fenris Arun in the group doesn't care about the star, the, what stars he was born under. He just wants to crack the worm in half. Uh, but you're not playing a stargazer without going through, the, through this if you've got access to the book. Right, absolutely. Uh, the stargazers are a common thread throughout this book for really glaring the obvious reasons. Yeah, the stargazers are an essential element of the ethereal realms. And it's like, you, you've finally given me a reason to use that tribe in this book, um, which I really appreciate because I find it's so hard to use them in a way that's not, oh, here's your just mystic, like, Kalindo master. This is an actually interesting way to use the stargazers, and it makes so much sense to use in this way. And, you know, another crossover hook that's popping into my head is just imagine stargazers and hermetics arguing about astrology. That would be awesome. Uh, just there's, there's, there's enough places that you could take that hook, that hook, but just stargazers and hermetics arguing about astrology is a jumping off point for got to be hundreds of possible crossover scenarios. Just that one idea. And, and without this book, there's no Garrow astrology that, I, that I've ever run across. There is in an earlier book in like one of the player's guides, um, uh, is the first time some of this astrology is mentioned, but in a way that was not as engaging as this book does it. Yeah. So it's, has, has, it, has it been mentioned in the W20 line at all? I don't think so, but I don't own the Umbra book for W20 yet. Um, I figured it was just going to be a rehash of everything else I've already read. So I and it's the third. It's the, it's the third. Where Werewolf does a bit more duplication of books than some of the other lines. Like there's three copies of Umbra. I think there's what are there three or four books of the Worm? Three books of the Worm. Okay, yeah, but there's also like there's Umbra. There's you know revi Umbra revised and there's Umbra twenty. I it, it, and I don't know how much the Garu parts of the Umbra changed in uh, two thousand in nineteen ninety nine two thousand, but I don't think it's as much as like the stuff that mages deal with did. No, not at all. Um, so, I'm, so, I'm, so I'm not sure what the value of having three different Umbra books is. I, having one in W twenty just to gather everything together makes sense, but having both Umbra and Umbra revised, yeah, just at, on the surface doesn't seem necessary to me. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a little redundant, but um, but I understand why they did it also, because um, they were trying to consolidate everything into an edition, so people that were using that edition had rules for those systems yeah. and things like that. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it just Werewolf seems to have done that a little bit more than the other lines, and I find that a little bit interesting from a publication point of view. Yeah, totally. That, um, so, chapter three. Yeah, that brings us to chapter three, which is about storytelling, omens, and prophecies, and importance. Mage um, needs this chapter. Mage needs this chapter bad. Yes. Um, I, 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 I think the entire world of darkness needed this chapter, but the, seeing it in Werewolf made the lack of it in Mage feel painful to me. Which, it's a shame that, it, this, that a chapter like this doesn't exist in one of the Mage books, because I think you're absolutely right, like, mages all about like mages are all about using prophecy and things like that you would assume it would there's get... a time sphere <laughs> right there's literally a sphere all focused on it um but it makes sense for werewolf too because prophecy is the underlying reason the werewolves do everything that they do or all these various yeah, prophecies 
Yeah, like, I, I think this is like the second time I've read Prophecy of, The Prophecy of the Phoenix, and this is the first one with commentary. And um, uh, I think we can safely say the apocalypse is far away. <laughs> the interesting thing about this prophecy, the prophecy of the Phoenix. So anyone that's listened to this show, I read the prophecy of the Phoenix really early on as one of the opening vignettes to an episode. You can either go into one of the books and read it, or you can listen to my horrible rendition of it. But the prophecy is the underlying thing that's driving werewolves. And this makes them think that the apocalypse is here. Um, from Charles's point of view, and I don't necessarily disagree with them, the signs that they have said are absolutely here are not necessarily here, depending on how you look at them. The first one, the first one's kind of fine. That's just saying that werewolves are diminishing, and that's because they're not reproducing much, and they really should get on that. Um, but once you get to the second one, you're talking about overpopulation and famine, and just overpopulation is not a real problem, and We've got less famine than we used to. I don't know what it's talking about, that the world is starving. Substantially less famine than we used to. Yeah, there's a very, like, millennial 1990s view on these things, where it's like, these issues are not as bad as we thought they were at the time. Like, yeah, like, like even, even in 1999, like, if you, look at, if you look at the history of famine in the 21st in the 20th century, you see... Ukraine under the, so, under the early Soviet Union, uh, you see some hot spots, but over time the hot spots have gotten smaller. Like, there's, no, there's nothing causing movements of people like the potato famine did right. uh, in the modern world. Like nothing on that scale is, ha is happening. And, or like a Churchill starving India. Like there's just nothing on, on that scale. Uh, like this is a problem that has improved and saying it getting worse is going to be a sign of the apocalypse kind of falls very flat to me. Unless the world of darkness is further away from mundane reality than it is presented in most of the books. Yeah, which is one thing that you can do if with, you, with your world of darkness if you want it to be. But you honestly have to think about the larger geopolitical repercussions of making it that bad also. And then yeah. you're, you're just gonna get farther away from reality. Yeah, and number three, great plume over the wilderness that they're calling that Chernobyl. You know what? Fair enough. Good to go, except for that they seem to think that the signs have to come in order. And then you get to number four, and it's like disease and deformity. And I know that this is a bad time to say it, but disease is getting better. <laughs> like, we're in current pandemic. We are overall doing better with diseases. Like, think about it this way. The 1920 flu pandemic killed 500,000 Americans in three months. Yeah. It killed 50 to 100 million people worldwide in, two, in less than two years. We are not even remotely on track for that. Which is good. Like, as bad as this pandemic is, the one 100 years ago that everyone compares it to was so much worse that we, can, we cannot comprehend it properly uh, from, from our nice, privileged 21st century positions. And... And then we get into the issue of werewolf, you know, talking about deformity equals evil. But we'll, we can even set that nonsense aside for the moment and just say that, we are, that we've got less disease than we used to, and we've got less uh, of what werewolf wants to call deformity than we, than we used to, because 
if you get injured, we are more likely to be able to patch you up than we used to be able. Like 150 years ago, there was basically no such thing as medicine uh, functionally. Uh, if you were on a Civil War battlefield and you got shot, it was have a swig of whiskey, we're chopping off your arm. Right. Uh, nowadays, if you get shot in the arm, you've got a pretty good chance that you're, that you're going to have a full recovery in six, in six months. I, like, it's night and day, and day. The past was worse than the present, in, the, it, you know, in this respect especially. Uh, I, for, for the fifth sign, you've got global warming and the destruction of the ozone layer. Global warming, fair enough. That's, go, that's going bad. But we fixed the ozone. Like, like just like each of these interpretations is like half of them are just plain wrong. <laughs> And in 1999, the ozone layer was a crisis, but we fixed it. Right. The ozone's doing great. <laughs> There's still a little bit of a hole, a hole at each pole, but it's not, it's not only not spreading, it is contracting. We, we, we've dealt with this by getting the CFCs out of everything. Um, just, just one of the interesting things about werewolf is they're fighting so hard for environmental issues. And here's one that we won. <laughs> right. And it's interesting to look at this from a 2020 perspective, almost 2021 perspective and go, these things, these signs maybe happened, maybe not, but they're certainly not necessarily the end of the world. So you can always take prophecies like this and just reapply them to other things that are happening in the modern day and go, oh, this is, in, in, if you want to use them this way, this is what's happening now and the end of the world's coming. You can always yeah, do that. The, yeah, the two options are, the Garu got all panicky in 1999 about the end of the world, and it turns out the apocalypse is still a while off. They've, got a, they've still got a chance to prepare properly, uh, which is a more hopeful direction to take your chronicle in. Right. Or if you want to just say, nope, you're screwed, then you've just got to say, your interpretations were wrong. The signs are all there. You just missed them entirely. It's further along than you thought. Yeah, which is yeah. also a fun way way to go, but but that's more of a downer ending. Right, um, <laughs> either direction would tell a good story one way or the other. Um, but yeah, but moving on from the prophecy of the phoenix, the general advice about prophecies and omens and portents and such is very good advice on the whole. Uh, th you know, th like some of the advice is, is basic stuff, like keep your options open. Uh, because players are going to do things you cannot predict. Right. Um, but there, there's lots of good examples, good, good examples of how to be vague about what the prophecy means so that you're not, you're not just telling the players, yeah, the hole in the ozone layer is going to kill you. You're telling them that, they're, that you know, uh, I don't remember what the prophecy of the Phoenix said, but I'm just going to make something up. Um, uh, the sky will be punctured uh, is a better is is a good thing to say because that could mean a million like like that could mean the um, uh, the that could mean Sputnik right that could mean a, the Apollo missions it could mean something that looked good at the time it doesn't have to mean something that looks bad like there's a hole in the ozone layer but it could also mean that uh, yeah. amb ambiguity is your friend ambiguity is always a good thing when creating a prophecy in a game like and then let your players make the call on oh this applies to this and if they if you like their idea that that applied to that then go with it and if 
you think, no, it's not exactly that. Let them have their own misinterpretation and then bring the actual element of that prophecy in later on. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, I strongly recommend the storytelling advice in chapter three of this book. The only thing in the chapter three that I can't endorse is the interpretation of the prophecy of the Phoenix. That's absolutely fair. Even with that, I think it's a good take on this is how Garu might interpret the uh, this prophecy. Is, this the was pro I think this was probably the interpretation of, let's say, mostly European Garu in 1999. I, it's being given by a stargazer, but but things like the, like worrying about overpopulation is a thing that you worry about basically Europe and China worried about and the rest of the world pointed out Malthus is dead. <laughs> uh, referring to Thomas Malthus, the, the philosopher and political scientist who basically said, we're going to run out of food. And then the, agri the agricultural revolution happened and we did not run out of food. Right, right. Which um, I'm going to move us out of that chapter. Yes. But I yeah, think it's... So it it is a great chapter for a storyteller. If you are a storyteller that wants to talk about prophecy, you should read this chapter. Yeah, fr frankly, this book is worth buying for the first three chapters. And then chapter four has plenty of good stuff that ties back to chapter one, especially. Yep. And if you want a pre-built chronicle that is actually well-written and is good, you can use this, but realize that you're going to actually have to build some of it yourself. Like it gives you the toolbox to build a chronicle but it doesn't really give it to you um, A through Z. And I think that is a better way to run a chronicle. In some oh, ways. yes. I, I, I would have reorganized chapters one and four into a slightly different chapters one and two, maybe, or chapters three and four, maybe. Yeah. Uh, because, just, be, just because there's plenty of stuff in chapter four that really would best go with just the descriptions of the Incarna and their, and their realms. Uh, but at the same time, you want that stuff easy to find while reading through this because there's a lot going on and you will lose track. There, there's a lot in this chapter going that's going on. Yeah. And it's, I wouldn't say it's too much, but there is, this is a big, like, all the pieces are big and they don't perfectly fit together. So you've got to look at them and kind of pull back every now and then and decide, this is how I'm going to put them together myself. They come close enough to fit, fitting together that you can see the negative space between them and how the uh, writers intended it to be filled out. But you can, but you have room to work. Yeah. Which, uh, again, I, from a storyteller perspective, give me this toolbox. Give me just enough that I know. Oh, this is how I can run this. This is where my players are going to go left and and go right, and it gives me enough playing room that it feels like their choices matter. Yeah, the, I. I, there, there's really only one thing in this entire chapter that I have as a significant critique. Okay, what's that? Uh, it recommends surprising your one of your Metis players with, hey, you're pregnant. Yeah, I also was going to bring that up. I'm glad that you mentioned it. Um, it's... Uh, I, 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 in, I have a written review of, uh, of Apocalypse on uh, drive-thru, and one of the big criticisms I have of it is, by the way, surprise your players with the Apocalypse. Like, no. Right. Right. Uh, there, uh, there are appropriate and inappropriate things to surprise your group with. And frankly, you're the only one who knows what those are for your group. The writers sure as hell don't. Yeah. And, and just from a yeah, general and, standpoint, don't surprise one of your player characters with them getting pregnant. That's just a no, no, don't do that. 
That's totally I, inappropriate. The closest I would come is if you have a male Metis uh, uh, PC who is with a female Metis NPC, surprise, she's pregnant, might be, okay, might be okay. I would still double check with my player. Like, I think yes. I'm going to run this plot. How do you feel about it? Oh, I, 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 agree, with, I agree with that. Um, but surprise, your mate who you should not be capable of reproducing with is pregnant is fundamentally different from Oh, that bodily autonomy your character had, it's gone. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, like, it, it's still a dramatic thing. It is not a thing to do lightly, but it is much less bad than you're pregnant. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, like, I, 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 I have never had a group that I would surprise with this sort of thing. And I've had some groups who are down for things that I'm not okay running even. Uh, but I, but the, but things on the level of your character is pregnant or surprise, the world is ending, uh, are not things that I am okay popping on a group on a group. And uh, just be very, just don't do it unless you know that your group would be okay with it in advance. In advance, like some groups, they don't want to know anything about the plot you have in mind in advance, and they are down for almost anything. Some groups want more buy-in. Just. I can't not bring it up when a book gives dangerous advice. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up. It was one of the notes specifically that I had because I was like, this is bad. Um, it's probably the only part of this book that I was like, this is absolutely bad. Um, and it's, it's but, only like three sentences or something. It's easy to ignore it. Right. And just do that. <laughs> right. Um, if you want to tell the story of the perfect Metis, which is, an essential element to this Chronicle uh, story, you've got to decide how that's going to impact your group, whether or not they are protecting that cub, whether or not they are involved in its creation in one form or another. But again, if you do that, make sure your players and their characters, uh, or not their characters necessarily, but make sure the players are going to be comfortable running the story and the way that you're going to tell it. Yeah, I'm going to say the way, the way that you phrased that involved in their creation in some way has me pick, imagining a group of Garu performing a forbidden rite to allow a menace to become pregnant, and that sounds like a great hook for this. That, that would be a better hook than the hooks they gave us. The hooks they gave us are good, but I think the doing a, a rite that shouldn't be done would actually be really cool. But like the, like like you've got you've got your Metis fr fr uh, friends. Uh, you're very acutely and painfully aware of the fact that Garu numbers are dwindling. You. Maybe you go into space and you find, and you, maybe on Venus, you know, I was just where, say on Venus, yeah. uh, you know, where reproduction is a major theme of the entire place, you find a ritual that should, that would allow, uh, let's say would allow Garu to mate with Garu with no, with, uh, no damage. And to experiment with it, you do it on a couple of metas because you figure most likely it won't work, but we can at least practice the, rit the ritual. And then it does. And now, look, you just started the apocalypse. Yeah, you kickstarted the apocalypse. I, I think that actually would be a really interesting story. Uh, I, I, it, gives, it gives player agency. It, like, and the players get to decide who is in the center of the ritual. Right. Um, and it, frankly, while I would never say, surprise, the perfect medicine is born, time for the apocalypse, I would absolutely say, surprise, you created the perfect medicine, time for the apocalypse. Because you did it. Right, right. 
Hmm. Uh, more player agency is more player agency is usually better. Almost and always. Also, and and more and when you're gonna end the world, make sure that, make sure that the PCs either have been fighting against that and it's a losing battle for a while, or make it their fault that it starts. Yeah, yeah. And, and make it something they actively decide. Like, like don't make it. Oh, you bossed a roll. Guess the world's ending. Make it. You made a decision, and that decision was bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's not possible to talk about this book without talking about the apocalypse because of the perfect menace and the red star. Yeah, this book is a, a chronicle for leading into the apocalypse. That is absolutely what the story is. Now you can run it so that they advert the apocalypse, but this is absolutely a book that's like leading into that scenario going, the end of the world is going to happen. This is a story of making the choice one way or the other. Can we stop it? And I think that's yeah, cool. I, I think it's a good story. Yeah, it's uh, again. I'm usually not a fan of the stories, you know, that are suggested by mage books. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by this one. Like, like th this book came together much, much better than like a lot of elements that I usually dislike worked in this one. Yeah, I felt the same way. There's things in this that in other books I've been like, I don't think this is a good thing or I don't think this was well-written, but it all works really well here. It all fits together or it allows you to build a puzzle in a way that works. Is like, As much as Casada and Rhea have done some very good work in other, on other books, I feel like this is kind of their masterpiece yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Like, because everything came together and the book knew what it was and did not deviate from that. Even though, like, as you've seen from talking to me, there's so much temptation to start talking about, oh, but the mages are over here, especially mages. Or, oh, there's changelings that, you know, have something to do with the moon and so on. But it really did stay focused and that is a strength of the book. As much as I sometimes do wish there was more crossover, I feel like there should be one crossover book that is just, basically world of darkness in space that is about how everyone does stuff there. Yeah. The good thing about this book is it's focused enough to tell the story about werewolves that it's telling. But if you are a storyteller of other lines, you can find story hooks in here that allow you to build your own chronicle, which I think yeah, is the strength of the book. Yeah. It almost feels kind of like um, they started with the chronicle idea and then they figured out what backstory they needed to give you because everything before it ties into it. Yeah, and I think that's probably what happened. They probably had an idea for, we want to tell this chronicle, how do we do it? And that they sketched and out the book from there. And probably editorial said, you have to you know, tell a story that covers these points. And you have freedom as long as, you know, it, as long as it, it ends with the perfect medis and the red star and all of that stuff, because they need to keep working towards apocalypse. And they weren't working on every werewolf book. It's, it's kind of like how each director in the MCU has freedom, but they have to hit the, the plot points that are going to be important for other movies to make sure it all fits together. Yep, exactly. Um, yep, World of Darkness, doing that, doing that uh, 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> awesome. Um, there are, uh, there's another chapter in this book yep. that talks about mechanics. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's good. It's got good. It's got. It's got a bunch of gifts for each of the planets. It's got um, merits and flaws for the astrology, but it really is just the repository of game mechanics related to all the stuff that has come so far. 
Yeah, but it's great because it gives you mechanics for all that stuff that came before. Oh, oh, oh yes, and I, like I like I I might quibble about some things like maybe this merit costs too much or this flaw gives you too little, but it's it, it's quibbling. It's 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 very flavorful. Uh, the mechanics are all in one place, so you're not flipping constantly when you're just trying to look up what does this gift do and what does that gift do. You only have to flip it, you say, trying to figure out what the, what um, what this incarna is going to behave like or or whatnot. Right. Um, or this is what they're going to give my players. Let me look in this chapter and sketch out a couple of the things and then say, okay, this is what you're going to get from this incarna. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I generally like it when the books have... Um, so I like either all the mechanics are right next to where the story elements attached to them are, or the mechanics are segregated to the end. It's when books kind of come in the middle that it doesn't really work for me. And this one just picked a side and stuck with it. And I appreciate that. Yeah, agreed. Um, and I think overall, I, I agree with you. So I, I, I might disagree with some of the mechanics here and there, but overall they're good and they're flavorful and they build the story. So that's all I want from mechanics. Help me build the story and yeah, fit, and then we're good. Yeah, the, the mechanics the mechanics and the setting really reinforce each other in this book. Yeah, which is rare like, for a werewolf book, actually. <laughs> so it's good that it does that. It, it, it's rare for World of Darkness as a whole in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and you've, you've, like, uh, Josh has heard me talk about ludonarrative dissonance, and there's almost none in this book. Like The game mechanics and the game's flavor really do uh, fit together and support each other. And just playing according to the mechanics, and playing with the mechanics in this book, the stories in this book kind of fall out naturally, which is really one of the best things you can have. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, cause yep. we've talked a little bit longer than I had gold, but that's okay. Cause I think this is a book that deserves a long talk. Um, if you are interested in getting it, uh, you can check out the link in the show notes for rage across the heavens. Um, this is a great book for anyone running any edition of werewolf, the apocalypse. Um, Charles, thank you very much for coming and talking to me. And if you're running mage as well, it's very important. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I would give this planet nine planets out of ten. <laughs> uh, I would definitely give this book nine planets out of ten as well. I, I think it's totally worth it. Awesome. Well, until we finally get an answer to the question of when will you rage, we'll Ask talk Lord. to you again next time. Ask the Lord. <laughs>